0: good morning how are y'all doing it is so good to see you take your copy of God's word and turn to James uh, chapter 2 it's good to be back with you all this morning and uh, thank I uh, appreciate uh, James peoples for doing a great job bringing the word last week and it's just good to see a great group here this morning brave a bunch of Floridians brave the cold came out uh, but hey Jacksonville's a good place to be right now right you could be up north where they're dealing with all kinds of snow or you could be down south where they're dealing with an iguana problem so <laughs> Um, It's good to be in Jacksonville. Uh, So we'll be in uh, James chapter 2 as we continue our uh, series called James Authentic Faith. And in James chapter 2, James is going to tackle the issue, the topic of favoritism. All right, now if you were to go uh, open up your phone to like the icon, the phone icon, down to the left, you'd see a little star button, click that, and uh, you would have a place to put your favorites. right. Your people who you, I guess you call them favorite people to call. All right. We all have our list of favorites, our favorite flavor of ice cream, our favorite movie, uh, maybe our favorite restaurant, favorite TV show, favorite band, favorite sports teams, uh, favorite. uh, Well, there's a long list that we could go through. Right. Uh, Favorite ride at Disney World. All right. Our kids like to ask that question. What's your favorite ride? You know what my favorite ride at Disney World is? When you got little, uh, when you got little kids, your favorite ride—the ride, ride home. That's it, right there. <laughs> that's it. Kids are sleepy and uh, get home. So anyway, there's a long list of favorites that we could uh, we could list off, and and that's not bad, right? We there's certain things we're partial to, partial to certain kinds of food and uh, places and uh, sports teams. Um, there's teams that we snub, right? So there's nothing wrong with playing favorites in some parts of our lives. But James points out. Uh, that there's a partiality and a favoritism that is always sinful, that is always wicked. And it's when you show partialities towards certain types of people. All right? And so this book so far has helped us understand what authentic faith looks like when we walk through trials, uh, what authentic faith looks like when we face temptation. And now we learn how as Christians, that if we're Christians who have authentic faith, we learn how those types of people, Christians, real-deal believers, treat people. All right. stand with your Bibles open. And I'll begin to read in verse 1, James chapter 2. It says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my feet, Have you not made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil faults? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs in the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man and not the rich one are not the rich ones, uh, those who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name uh, by which you were called? You really fulfill the law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those. Who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to those who have uh, who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Would you have a seat as I pray? Dear Father, we pray that this morning, Lord, that you would help us to understand your word, to apply your word. God, thank you for uh, being a father who's faithful to us and merciful to us. Lord, thank you for bringing us into your presence too to learn from your word, to hear from you in your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we walk through your word to learn how not to walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of scoffers or the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, Lord, that uh, you would uh, plant our hearts by the streams of water which are your word, uh, that we would walk away and yield good fruit that is uh, lasting and that is honoring to you. Uh, Lord, I pray that your word would be a lamp unto our feet and a lion unto our path this morning, and we'd hide it in our heart that we might not sin against you, and uh, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what James is addressing right here in these 13 verses, it's important, you know, as we try to be faithful students of God's Word, uh, that we see everything in context. And this is what's helpful when you walk through a, a, a book like we often do here, verse by verse. Uh, we're able to see how these things tie together. Specifically, what I'm talking about is this portion of the chapter, all 13 verses, I believe are tied to the last verse in the previous section that we were in uh, the last verse in chapter 1 so you'll see at the end of chapter 1 where James is talking about what undefiled religion looks like all right religion's not a bad word in and of itself a religious people have kind of given it a bad negative connotation but James shows you that re- true religion true authentic faith uh, that's not undefiled. He shows you what's that look, that, what that looks like and gives, shows us the different marks of that. And, and one of those, the last one that you see, is he said it involves keeping yourself unstained from the world. We're, as authentic, real-deal believers, we are to be living lives that are unstained from the ways the, of this world, the way this world operates, the values of this world. And instead, we're to align ourselves with the values of the Bible, the values of the kingdom of God. So I think that this entire section, that last line of chapter 1, that this entire section, all 13 verses, is James expounding on how in one particular way we need to make sure we're not being stained by the way that this world operates, and it has to do with partiality. Now, there are two big takeaways uh, that I want us to walk away with uh, here this morning, from here this morning, as we understand what it means to be an authentic disciple who's demonstrating authentic faith in this area. And the number one is this, all right? First big point is we need to understand that in the kingdom of God, as disciples, that treating others with partiality is forbidden. It's always outlawed. It's forbidden. He gets right to that point in the first verse. He says, don't do it, basically. That first verse, let's read it together again. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James is saying, don't do it. All right? Don't play favorites. This is to be a no playing favorite zone. All right, In the kingdom of God... Right here in our own church. Don't be partial to people. Don't be a snob. Don't huddle together with other people uh, and you know create clicks. There's the command, right? Don't do it. Don't play favorites. Don't show partiality. Y'all ready to go home? Are we good? All right? Of course not, right? I wish it was that easy. All right. If it was that easy, James would just go from this verse right here to verse 14. And instead, he's going to need to take us through several other verses to make sure we get this point we right, we got to allow the word to work in our life we've got to take time to walk through these verses all right and as we do i want you to remember something all right as you walk through james is a bossy little book it's probably the bossiest book in all of the bible all right you got 108 verses you got over 60 imperatives or right? he's just command after command after command real life practical stuff and it it he hits you with heavy hard hitting truth all right but I want you to remember something, that when you are confronted with a hard word of truth, as we will be again this morning, you need to know that that's called conviction, the feeling that you feel if you're a believer, and you need to know that conviction is a good thing, all right? And you need to be able to recognize, and us Baptists need to get this, all right? Because we, we like somebody to stomp on our toes a little bit sometimes, you know what I mean? All right, but we need to make sure we don't confuse conviction and condemnation. There's a difference between conviction and condemnation. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What you should never feel as a Christian, as you walk through Scripture, and as you walk through portions of Scripture that are heavy-hitting, that are hard truths, you should never feel condemnation. Why? Jesus has already taken our condemnation. All right, Jesus has already taken our judgment on the cross. But we do experience conviction. Our conviction is that ouch feeling that you feel when you hear God's Word and you realize your life's not matching up to the way God's telling you to live your life. But conviction is a gift of the Spirit. It's proof that God loves you. It's proof that His Spirit is inside of you. It's proof that He's not finished with you yet. Right? It's proof that you are His. And so this morning, using truths like this, it's going to once again fall on your soul. like It's going to be like a lead weight of conviction. But it should fall without a single ounce of condemnation. Understanding that He loves you enough to give you hard truth, to help you change, to help transform you more into the image of Jesus Christ because you are His. And so, how does God want us to change this week? There it is. Brothers, and you could add sisters. Sisters, show no partiality. On some of your translations, you might see the word favoritism. All right, the original word there is interesting. The original word in the original language is. Because what scholars have found is that they can't find the word that they use here for what we call favoritism and partiality. They can't find the phrase and the word that they use in the original texts anywhere in the ancient world outside of the church. They believe that the church actually made up this word to use, to communicate something. All right? And the root of the word kind of shows us what they were trying to communicate. The root of the word is this. It's, it's receive the face or lift the face. So the original word that we, uh, for partiality or for favoritism was receive the face. And so what the early church was doing is they created this word that would bring to mind to the early church this kind of Old Testament picture of a corrupt judge who was instructed not to lift the face of criminals that would stand before him, lest he lift their face, recognize them as maybe a family member or a friend or an influential person in the community, and then go you know, soft on his judgment of them alter the way that he treats them based on something external like that. All right, and so our words that we use for that in our modern English day language is favoritism, impartiality. It's the idea of altering your treatment of someone, judging someone or showing preferential treatment towards someone based on external factors. Now, the kind of partiality that James is talking about right here in this specific church that he's writing to has to do with class distinctions. All right, he even illustrates it. All right. So what he does is he and that's helpful, right? Illustrations are helpful. And James knows that. So he's a pastor. And so he gives us an illustration, an easy one to follow. And he lays out this hypothetical situation, kind of takes us into the service of an, of an early church on a Sunday morning. And he lays out this hypothetical scenario, this situation. And it's really a, he's, he's putting a test out there that he knows this church is not going to pass. And so he's leading them along in verses two through four. So, are you there? He takes us right into an early church worship service, right? Music playing, all right? The ushers are seating people. Uh, they're meeting people at the door. And all of a sudden, a guy walks in to the to the main doors of the church, and it says he's a, adorned in jewelry, all right? He's got a big gold ring on his finger. That was a, a clear sign of wealth in those days. All right, he has an expensive, he has like an expensive robe, you know, got his expensive Armani robe on, got his jewelry on his hands. He's, he looks like a rich person. People recognize him. This is a man of wealth. This is a man of prominence, all right? The the early church at that time was full of a lot of people who were poor. So this man is, he, you know, he's he's making a, a scene. You know, people are noticing that he's there. And so evidently, you know, it, this usher maybe sees him, and it's like he's on the radio, high roller alert, right? He's, gonna, he's weaving through the crowds, making a beeline, and stands in front of him, welcome, sir. Welcome to Dead Sea Baptist Church. We're so glad that you're here this morning. I saw you coming in, our parking lot on you at Camel. My goodness, what a ride. That thing's very nice. I see our security guards are out there right now taking pictures of it. We'll make, sure, we'll make sure that not a scratch gets on. You you come with me. Come down here. Let me take you in this back way here. Let me take you down. Hey, our pastor tends to look this way a lot. When he preaches, I'll sit you right down here on the front row. Best seat in the house. Do you want some coffee? We don't usually let people drink and drinks in the sanctuary, but I can hook you up. What do you want? Right, And about that time, you know, as he's uh, seating the, you know, this rich man, oh, Popper Pete, oh, poor Popper Pete comes you know, hobbling down the middle aisle. And that usher looks up and goes, not today. Of all days for Popper Pete to come to church. We got this prominent gentleman. Oh, he's coming my way. I knew it was him. You can smell Popper Pete before you see him. And look at him. He's got those ragtag clothes on again. He's coming right down toward you. Oh, and he can intercepts Popper Pete, Pete, listen. We we gotta save these seats for somebody else, brother. Hey, go to the, just go to the back. Just go stand. In fact, just go back there and go back there and, and sit down. You know what that meant in that ancient world? It meant get out of view. And he turns maybe back around and says, "Hey, I got your coffee. I'll be right back." Right. It's pretty clear what we're seeing. One of the uh, books that I read this week, he uh, he called this usher the, the nearsighted usher. That's what uh, the part of this passage was. Was titled and, and we look at this right here and we go, man, that's sad, that's extreme. Certainly, we've moved past that. Certainly, nothing like like this extreme, nothing, nothing this blatant, you know, showing uh, being a respecter of persons like this would never happen in a modern-day church. And the, the response to that is, sure it can, and sure it does. Because there continues to be in us and in our hearts a sinful impulse in all of us to judge based on externals, to quickly. It's amazing how quick even those who have come to Christ can become a respecter of persons and give preferential treatment like that. We, we don't think that way, but it, it happens quicker than we uh, want to admit. It's like the, the church office that got a call one day, and it was a guy in the community, big voice, and the secretary said, Hello, this is So and So Baptist Church. And the guy said, Hey, I want to talk to the uh, head hog at the trough down there at that church. She said, Excuse me? I said, I want to talk to the head hog at the trough down there at that church. And she said, Well, sir, if you're talking about our pastor, you are not going to speak that way about him. Shame on you. And this conversation is about to end. And he said, Well, let me tell you something. I, I live in our community. I'm a businessman and I got a $200,000 check I'm wanting to give to y'all's building fund down there, but I ain't going to give it to you until I talk to the head hog at the trough. And she said, quickly, well, uh, let me get that big oinker on the phone for you real quick. Please hold. (laughs) Our tendency to show partiality maybe is with us and near us more than we're willing to admit. And what James is showing us very clearly, very directly, is that it's a form of worldliness that may, hey, happen out there where they're going to honor the rich and the powerful and the strong, and they're going to reject reject the rejects and push down the poor. But he's saying it can never, ever happen in here. Now, James is going to focus mostly right here on class distinctions. Right, but we can show partiality in a number of ways. I got this list from a commentator this week, and it's helpful because all of these ways that we tend in our hearts sometimes to show distinctions or partiality, rather in favoritism, they all start with A. One way is this: A appearance. All right, appearance. We know that's true. The world elevates. and accepts the attractive and the pretty and the popular. Is that not the way Hollywood runs? Is that not what high school runs on, right? Pretty and popular, get invited to the party, get invited to the prom. And if you're not in that group, you're playing games with your brother or sister at home on Friday night, playing Monopoly or Connect Four. That's just the way the world turns. We live in a world that discriminates and categorizes and makes judgments and gives different treatments based on how you look. Uh, One way that this can happen is treating people differently because of the color of their skin. Ethnicity. Listen, racism was alive and well when uh, Jesus walked the earth. And it's alive and well today. And it may manifest itself in subtle ways at times or extreme ways at times, but in no way does it ever belong in the family of God. In no way does it ever belong in the hearts of God's people. And we have to always be aware that it can be there. And for many of us, it may be there. But it's forbidden. So, appearance. Second one is this age. You know, whether it's automatic judgments people make about older people because they're older, or judgments that people can make about younger people simply because they're younger. Timothy dealt with that. Remember 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. What is Paul telling? Don't let anybody look down on you because of your age. So people in his church, Timothy, they were uh, thinking Timothy was inept, not able to lead in a certain way because he was young and lacked experience. Uh, The third way is this, achievement. Achievement. So we we know this. We live in a world that, that the highly educated, that the successful, that the powerful, that the popular get elevated, right? That's just the way that the world turns out there. That's not the way the kingdom of God turns. That doesn't mean that those things aren't important. It doesn't mean it's important to, to strive to be successful and to finish schooling and to get degrees and to seek to be successful and to uh, you know, earn achievement through uh, your work and at your workplace and in your career. Those things are important things. They're just not ultimate things in the kingdom of God. In other words, in the kingdom of God, the guy with the PhD and the guy with the GED can make equally significant contributions and impacts eternally speaking in the kingdom of God for Jesus Christ fourth one is affluence all right this is what's happening in the church that james is writing to all right discrimination is being made based upon wealth and again here's james's point that that happens out there Right, the Socially, the red carpet treatment gets laid out for those who make a lot of money and who are wealthy in the world. And socially, the rug gets ripped out from underneath. People who are poor and marginalized and pushed to the side. That may be true out there, but it cannot happen in here. It's forbidden. Don't do it. It's a sharp word. It's a convicting word. And it's meant to cut. It's meant to convict us. But remember, as I said a few moments ago, a hard word of truth cuts us to heal us. A hard word of truth cuts us to heal us. The Holy Spirit is is taking a knife and it in us through this word of truth. That's happening. It's just at this point in the text where you begin to realize it's a surgical knife. And he's cutting us to heal us. He's going to begin with precision now in these next several verses to help us not be people who show partiality. It's possible. In Christ, it's possible. The gospel makes it possible to treat people without partiality, without favoritism. And so that's the second point this morning. It's loving others without partiality is possible. So not only is it forbidden, it's possible. And throughout this text, we see, uh, I, I found this, this week, as I kind of mine the text, three main ways that we can battle against the sin of partiality. Fighting against it, growing uh, to be, be free from it is possible. And here are three key ways though, that we got to battle against it. So three subpoints under that main point. All right, so we'll move a little bit around in the text to find these this morning. But the first one, big one is this you gotta own partiality as a sin. If you're gonna grow in this area and you're gonna show less favoritism, and you're going to treat people with no partiality, you've got to own it as a sin. Uh, He kind of pointed that out already there in verse 4, in a way when he says you know, that if you make distinctions among yourselves, he said you're judges with evil thoughts, right? So what James is saying is that showing partiality and favoritism isn't just a little out of bounds, he's saying it's evil. He's saying it's pure evil. And so uh, what he does in verses uh, 8 through 11 is he kind of unpacks that and it digs down and helps us understand something about the sin of partiality. In verse 8, what does he say? If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. That's called the royal law. It's a royal law because it's given by King Jesus and because it's given as a big law by which if you follow everything else seems to fall into place. Remember Jesus is there in Matthew chapter 22. He's confronted by some Pharisees who are trying to kind of trap him, asking him what the the most important commandment is. They want to kind of have a gotcha moment with Jesus. And Jesus turns it back on them. So he takes 613 commandments and he reduces them down to two. He pulls from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and with all of your mind. And then Jesus reaches for the second part of the great commandment to Leviticus 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so what Jesus was saying is, hey, all of the law can be summed up in this. I and mean, you love God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul. You love your, And if you do that, you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you can get that right, it's amazing how many other things fall into place in your discipleship. But what James is saying is if you seek to obey in this area of not showing partiality, if you seek to obey the second part of the great command, to love your neighbor as yourself, which means if you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, you don't want people to show partiality towards you. You don't want somebody to give uh, you know preferential treatment to somebody else and and to leave you to the side and not to treat you equally. He's saying if you if you follow that second part of the royal law, then this all you're going to be fine. That's what he means right there. But he says the problem is is you're not doing that. James is saying to this church, he's saying, hey, I love you too much not to show you how big of a deal this is and to show you that you're 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 royally failing in this area. You know, verse nine says. You would be doing well, but if most Bible scholars would tell you that the original, in the original language, that a better English word in our modern day use of, of, of English right now uh, would be the word that how we use "sense." All right, so instead of "if," it's a good note to write there uh, next to that uh, word uh, "if" in verse nine. It's good to write the word "sense." And what James is saying is, if you love your neighbors yourself, you would be fine. But since you are showing favoritism, you are living in Sin. All right, now, so it it took me a while to get here this week as I was studying this, but I think that James is really aiming at two people right here. He does this throughout the book. It's a book that primarily is written to the church, but he also is aware that there's people in the church close to the things of God, close to the things of Christ who have never come to Christ. And often what can create a big barrier between people in a genuine relationship with Jesus is religion. People depending on their religious activity. All right? So I believe that this section where he digs down and helps us understand something about sin here is he's confronting people who are lost in their religion. And people today can continue to be lost in their religion. Thinking that your good works is somehow going to get you into a right relationship with God. And that's the way people were thinking back then. They were scoring, giving themselves high spiritual scores because they were were comparing themselves to other people in their community and even in their church who were falling into sin and it was manifesting itself in those big sin ways, quote-unquote. Hey, we're not murdering anybody. We're not committing adultery. They prided themselves on on the exterior, on keeping a, a checklist of all kinds of religious duties in place, and they were showing favoritism, but certainly at times were maybe justifying it. And maybe if they would admit that it was kind of wrong, it's really not that big a deal. And what James is doing is he's coming along and showing them even that, that, that favoritism. That, that, that's what's, that's what's uh, the sin that's manifesting itself in your life right now. I'm telling you it's a sin and it's no little sin. That sin right there of favoritism makes you as guilty, the one that you're trying to brush off not as a big deal, it reveals that your heart is just as dead and rotten and rebellious and in need of rescuing as a murderer, as an adulterer. So he's establishing the same case that Paul establishes in the first three chapters of Romans, heavily in those three chapters and then throughout the rest of his epistles. That there's a universal reality about every human heart that walks the earth. Every human heart that's in this room... Every human heart that's in our community right now, every human heart that's in our world, and it's this, everybody, every human heart uh, is, the reality is, inside of that heart is your sinner. Uh, Paul says it this way, there's no one righteous, no, not one. And that's where James is taking this. Look at verses 9 through 11. He says, But if you show partiality, you're committing sin, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, uh, has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery and also do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, uh, you have become a transgressor of the law. So James is presenting a really important principle when it comes to the law, and it's called the principle of quantity. All right? The principle of quantity. So a number of things, you know, the word quantity means. In other words, you don't, he's saying this, you don't have to break every part of the law to be labeled as a lawbreaker. Right? Just one makes you a sinner. Now, we know we commit more than one. In fact, just to fill you in, we break all of them. You say, well, I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery. Well, Jesus comes along, and he, he helps us see something that God looks, and He judges us based on the intention of our hearts. And says, if you've ever had hate in your heart, you're a murderer. If you've ever committed adultery with somebody in your mind, you're an adulterer. Right? So you, you you go through all the commandments. We've broken all of them. But for sake of argument, it's as if James, because these religious people like to just keep focused in on one little thing. And what James is saying is let's just pretend you have just broken one. Let's pretend like this sin of partiality is the only sin that you've committed. It's not true, but let's just for sake of argument, you need to know that just breaking one makes you guilty of breaking it all. It's a unified law because it's given by one lawgiver. Right, you break one, you've broken all of them. So, uh, I was reminded of a story. Um, when I was like eleven or twelve. I was at our little league park, and I th- it was at, at night. And so, I think my brother had a game, but me and some friends went over to a field that was vacant, that was empty, and it was the t-ball field. And we went there intentionally so that we could hit the ball easier over the fence. And we began to play uh, homer and derby. And uh, I was up to bat. And um, don't get too impressed. It was a t-ball field, but man, I crushed the ball. I mean, into the night sky. And I was like, you know, looking at it, kind of a slow walk to first base. And then all of a sudden went, oh, no, as I kind of looked at the trajectory of the ball and realized that it was headed for a pack of cars out in the parking lot. And that ball came right down on the windshield of this pickup truck. Boom! I mean, a baseball-sized crater right into the right side of that windshield. And so we all went, ooh, you know, and then what made us go, ooh, even, you know, worse was that we heard a man's voice say, hey, and we looked, and it was the guy who owned that truck. And he comes marching our way. We, I just kind of freeze. And he walks up, and that guy was so mad. He was like, I can't believe you kids did this. You know, I don't even have insurance. But at that time, I didn't understand insurance. I should have been like, you should have insurance on it. You know, but he's like, I don't have insurance on it. Who are you going to pay for this? And then he gets close, and he's like, are you a Revis boy? I was like, who's, who's that? Revis. Revis, Revis. Don't know no Revis. Uh, but he was a guy from my church, you know. It's like, oh, no, this is getting worse. You know? He ended up being... Pretty cool guy. He didn't tell my dad. All right. Uh, you know, and uh, so I told my dad later on in life, you know, but that night I, I didn't get as much trouble as I thought I would. But let's just roll through that scenario. What if in that moment he's mad? And he's like, man, that's that's going to cost me money, man. Do You know, somebody's going to pay for that. What if in that moment I say, hey, brother, calm down. I got it under control. Right. Yeah. Just simmer down now, sir. And I'm in my back pocket and bring a ten dollar bill and say, that should cover it. No, he won't that's gonna cost me hundreds of dollars dude, it's just a little piece of glass. Certainly it can't be more than ten dollars. No, see, breaking just one small portion of that window makes you guilty of being a window breaker. You see what you see what James is doing? He's, he's lumping, and this is radical, and this is something that in our culture and in our world and in our own pride and how we worship our own selves and our own strength and our own power and think we have the ability to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and to make ourselves into a better person that one day will be acceptable in the sight of a holy God. He's saying, no, no, you all have the same disease. And he's lumping people who maybe have just been guilty of the manifestation of the sin of favoritism in their life and he's lumping them together with people who have physically committed adultery and murdered someone. Obviously, the consequences for those sins are different, but what he's saying is is something that you see throughout the whole of Scripture and as you study the doctrine of sin, that all parties, no matter what you've done, whether it's the six-year-old who's guilty of just maybe disobeying mom and stealing some bubble gum, to the 37-year-old who is in jail, and in prison for the rest of their life for murder. are the 67 year old who has been in church all of their life. But has leaned on their religion to save them. And considers little things like favoritism and partiality that they know exist in their heart. Little things that certainly God will brush under the rug one day. He's saying he's lumping them all together. And it's saying all of you have a guilty verdict, sinner, lawbreaker, enemy of God, stamped on your soul. And you need to be rescued. And you can't get that sin stain off of your heart with your best tries. There's no amount of Bible reading. There's no amount of church attending. There's no amount of praying. There's no amount of moral living. You could spend the rest of your life trying to scrub it off of your life and you cannot do it. The works of your hands are not enough. The do better approach doesn't work. The message at the heart of Christianity is that we become right with With God. We have the sin stain washed off of our heart. We experience forgiveness of sins, not because of our performance, but because of Jesus's. We were talking last night, my family, and we were talking about this, and I said something on purpose to just kind of make, especially my kids, kind of look at me like, huh? I said, Y'all know we are saved by works. They looked at me like you're looking at me. We have a works-based salvation that we hold to. We're saved by works. It's just not our works. It's the works of Jesus Christ that He accomplished by coming to fulfill the law. He died on the cross, and when He said, It is finished, the work was done. And He rose from the dead, proving that that work was accomplished in full. And so right here in the middle of this text on partiality, it's like this invitation. Isn't that cool? He's inviting people who are dead in their sin, the sin of religion, to come to Jesus, but it's also a reminder if you do know Jesus Christ to remember something about the sin of partiality. The sin of partiality was enough for you to be deserving of the judgment of God to come down on you and that's helpful to remember that moving forward as a Christ follower to always remember it's a big deal. To always remember that showing favoritism is no small sin. There's no such thing. Jesus came and died on the cross to set you free from that. It's a serious sin. Just think about it. When you show partiality, you're literally breaking the royal law that Jesus says sums up the whole of God's will for the way you're supposed to treat people. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's a big deal. So we've got to own it as a serious sin. Second thing is this. You've got to keep your eyes fixed on the Lord of glory. So we get a new identity, we get a new heart when we're saved and we own our sin. But we have a new king. Look at verse 1. Notice the title that James calls Jesus, Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of Glory. So kind of we're back at this scenario James has given about showing partiality to a rich person and a powerful person. And the question is, is that bent is in all of us, in our flesh? So how do we stop that from happening? This is key. You, don't, you, you keep remembering, you don't stop reminding your own heart that Jesus is the Lord of Glory. You stay captivated by Jesus. You get obsessed with the gospel. If you, hey, if you get obsessed with the Lord of glory, you know what? You'll you'll be way less impressed with people. You'll be way less likely to fawn over certain kind of people. When my eyes are fixed on Jesus, who's the Lord of glory, bowing down to human greatness doesn't even make sense, if I believe that that's true. I did an illustration this week that was pretty helpful. Imagine, um, don't say anything out loud. Because I imagine there would be a lot of different answers to this. But imagine in your mind, when I say celebrity, person you would love to meet, or that you just, when I think of of a big, well-known person in the world, who comes into your mind? Think about, see that person. And then imagine this morning, as we were singing, that that person came into the room and sat right down next to you. Right? Right now, would you be a little distracted? Don't look at me. Of course you would. You'd already taken 15 pictures with your cell phone, like discreetly, you know, like sending you your friends, you know, Instagram and telling people, you won't believe who I sat next to at church today or who sat next to me. Right. But then imagine as this, you know, this illustration, I saw this illustration this week. Imagine in this moment that person's next to you. If we if we were able to to see the literal veiled but literal like Isaiah six moment, just a piece of the Shekinah glory of God show up on this stage. Like you were able to do... he just, got, Isaiah just, read Isaiah 6. He just gets a glimpse of the train robe train of the Lord and he's done. He's ruined. If you were just able to get a glimpse of the veiled presence of the Lord of glory, are you distracted by that person anymore? You're not. Why? Because you have the right biblical perspective. You have the Lord of Glories who's seated on His throne, but now He's seated on His throne in your heart. You're focused on Him. He's your Lord. He's your great and glorious shepherd. Hey, in Him we shall not want. He satisfies the longings of my soul. He's my Lord. Knowing Him is my great reward. So that means I don't need to buddy up with anybody who I think has power and connections that can give me something that I think I need because they can't give me anything that I don't already have in Jesus Christ. I have all I need in my great and glorious shepherd. And when I'm worshiping him, when I'm extolling him, when I'm praising him, listen, it frees me from, you know, it frees me from showing preferential treatment and showing partiality and showing none of that makes sense. When you see him as the Lord of glory, it's like the Lord of glory and then all of us just looking to the Lord of glory. It freezes up to treat people equally and not go shoving the have nots out of the way to try to get to the haves. The more we gaze on the glory of Jesus Christ, hey, the more we are able to treat everybody in the room as our neighbors, like Jesus did. Third, final point this morning is we got to see people. Sub point after, under the second point, we got to see people through the eyes of our good and gracious heavenly Father. Own our sin. See. Keep our eyes fixed on the Lord of glory. We've got to see people through the eyes of our good and gracious Heavenly Father. Just one verse, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God, which He has promised to those who love Him? You know what James is saying back to that worship service? He's saying, hey, when you put the poor on the floor, when you judge people based on the external, when you're giving preferential treatment to the rich man because of his earthly riches, you're opposing the gospel. You're ignoring the way that God sees those people you're shoving on the floor. How does God view Popper Pete? If Popper Pete is a believer, right? Who you just shoved on the floor. He looks at him, and you know what Jesus sees? You know what God sees? He sees a man rich in faith, an heir of the kingdom of God. In other words, he may not look like it, but he's hit the jackpot spiritually. You just shoved him on the floor. You just snubbed a spiritual billionaire to run across the room... And to cozy up to somebody you think is going to help benefit you. In fact, scholars believe that they were running across trying to rub shoulders with this rich guy and impress him because people in that culture, in that society, it was the rich class that was oppressing poor people. And there was a lot of poor Christians in the church. So they thought maybe they believed that in this scenario, what James is showing is that uh, you know, people were trying to cozy up to the rich so they did make things easier on the church, compromising their faith, pushing the have-nots out of the way on the way to do that he's pointing out the sin in that. He's saying, Papa repeat me, he's rich in faith. He's an heir of the kingdom. He's got spiritual riches beyond this world. He's been exalted with Christ. He's a son of the king. He's got a new identity. Hey, God looks at him in a different way than you're looking at him right now. He sees him as his son. He sees him and treats him with dignity. The world may overlook Him out there. The world may not value Him out there. The world may not have time for Him out there. The world may seat Him socially in the nosebleed section of the world. But he's saying in the kingdom of God, God has seated Him at the king's table. And you know what? There's a bigger point being made right here. This isn't just about the poor. There's a bigger point being made right here that any believer, whether you're physically rich, physically poor, black, white, socially awkward, social butterfly, everybody in Christ is given a seat of honor at the king's table if you're a Christian. God does not have seating arrangements at His table based on what the world says is important and based on the world, the way the world rates you. Can you imagine a dad at Thanksgiving? Like going to your Thanksgiving dinner and the dad being at the head of the table and seating people like that? Susie, you didn't make as much as Johnny this year, you know, your salary. So go down, go down there to the end of the table. Johnny, you get the best seat in the house. No, what would you do if a dad would show him favoritism like that? You'd pull him aside, pop him inside the head. What you, you're going to ruin them. What are you doing? That's not how you love your kids as an earthly father. Listen, in the, at, the, at the king's table... Everybody who's come to Christ, no matter how this world has viewed you, there's a certain specific way that God's viewed you. You have value and dignity. He gives you a place at His table. In the way that God sees people right now, if you're a soul that's been saved, seated at His table in heaven, that's the way things are viewed. That's the way things are going to be for eternity. If that's true there, it should be the same way that we're treating people here. In His church, we ought to love People without partiality. If it won't be that way in heaven, it shouldn't be that way here. Hey, the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed and the left out. None of them are going to be sitting on the floor in heaven. There are no cheap seats in glory. And that's a word for some of you who feel like you're in a bad seat right now. You're a follower of Christ and you're like, I can't get a break. Talk about cheap seats. That's the way I feel in life. Hey, keep your eyes on heaven. Don't listen to the enemy's lies to say that you following Jesus, man, I'm, I'm getting, I continue to run into bad situation. After bad situation, Jesus said, come follow me. He didn't promise that it'd be an easy life. But you know what he does promise you? That you're going to spend eternity in a new seat. If you're in a bad seat right now, keep your eyes on heaven. There, a great reversal is coming. And one day, no matter how bad your seat is in this life, no matter how bad you're treated in this life, one day you're going to be reseated. You're going to get a seat at the king's table. and for, Hey, and that's a word for all of us to remember. If that's true in heaven one day, that should inform the way that we treat everybody right now. There's no cheap seats in glory. And I want to make an important note right here. Because what James is not saying right here is he's not making the point that wealth and influence and power is bad. Some of y'all are like, man, I shouldn't have drove my new sports car I bought this week to church this morning. I'm going to slink out of here and... Get out of this parking lot quick, man. Making me feel bad. Listen, having stuff's not a sin. It's a sin when your stuff has you. Possessing things is not a sin. It's a sin when your stuff possesses you. When you make it an idol. Money's not evil. It's the love of money that's evil. Hey, we welcome rich believers to Schindler Drive Baptist Church. We're glad you're here. Please help us fund the mission that God's called us to. But what all this means right here is it means you're not going to get preferential treatment because of the stuff you have. Which, you know, I would imagine if you're somebody who's more affluent, I would imagine that that's, that's probably a pretty refreshing thing. That if our church is operating the way that it should, and we're treating each other equally, not the way that the world is, that this is a place you can know that people aren't cozying up to do you just to get something from you, because that's what you deal with out there, whether it's with family or friends. It's a place, hey, where you're in the family of God. And you're going to be loved simply because you're accepted and loved by Jesus Christ because you're an image bearer of God and a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ and where you can experience love with no strings attached. You're going to still get red carpet treatment. You got money in this world, you're still going to get red carpet treatment, but it's just not going to be because how big your bank account is. It'll be for the same reason we're going to give red carpet treatment and love and kindness and honor to Pete and everybody in between because we're all in the same boat of sin, all in the same need of grace. We enter through the same door of salvation where the ground is level at, at the foot of the cross. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ, eyes fixed on the Lord of glory, all rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom unified by the gospel of Jesus Christ, loving each other sacrificially and unconditionally in the way that Jesus has shown us love. That right there is the main kryptonite for partiality and favoritism. Remembering the beauty of the gospel. How did God treat you when you came to Him? Did He treat you based on the same criteria the world treats you? No, He didn't treat me or receive me or judge me based on that criteria. Listen, He didn't base His acceptance of us based on what we could bring to the table. You know what? If He did, we're all sunk. Because all I brought to the table was my need to be saved. All I brought to the table was my stench of sin, my filthy rags of, of my righteousness, and my need, desperate need, to be saved. And He looked at me in my brokenness, in my complete spiritual poverty and powerlessness to do anything about it, deserving judgment, and He gave me mercy. If you are a believer, if you are a follower of Christ, You have gotten something you do not deserve. You brought nothing to Him, but your sin. And He took your sin and shame. And He gave you His righteousness. He gave you a new identity. He gave you a new family to belong to. He gave you unconditional love. He gave you His grace and His mercy that will never run out. And proof that you're a recipient of mercy is that now you're a dispenser of it. That's what verse 13 is talking about. A proof of authentic faith, a proof that you've received mercy is that now you're a dispenser of it. Proof that you've received His love is that now you show it to people, no matter personality differences, no matter skin color, no matter affluence or social status, no matter someone's hygiene. We embrace everybody. We love everybody the same. I was listening to a Sinclair Ferguson sermon this week. And he's a Scottish pastor. And uh, I just feel smarter when I listen to a Scottish guy preach. Um, it just sounds smarter. And he gave an illustration um, about a lady that he knew back in Scotland who won. She won Scotswoman of the Year, he said, for running a big charity, a big faith-based charity. And they would help homeless folks and get people off the street. And somebody who Scotland didn't know a whole lot about was her husband. And yet she would, in interviews, say that, you know, she had more respect for him than anybody else. She loved the way she was, he was such an instrumental part of that, of that work. He'd be in the trenches of that kind of ministry and just would love on homeless people and show he would show love to pe- the untouchables in that community. And she was asked one day, how does he, and I can't remember his name, but he said his name, how does he embrace and hug and get close to those people that just stink is messy people. And she said, My husband told me that he's able to stand there and embrace those people because there was a day when Jesus stood next to him. When he stood there in his filth, in the stench of his sin, and Jesus in all of his righteousness put his arms around him. That's what, I believe that's why that way James is ending this. If you've received his mercy, you're, if you're a recipient of it, you're going to be a dispenser of it. You're going to love people in a different way than this world loves them. It doesn't matter what they can offer you. You're going to love people equally. You're going to see people as image bearers of God. I want to do that. Don't you want to do that? I want to see people the way that God sees them. And what James is showing us is that's possible. And I guess my big charge and challenge to us this morning at Schindler Drive Baptist Church is may God put to death the nearsighted usher in all of us. May God put to death the nearsighted usher in all of us. If that happens, I'm telling you, the results are explosively glorious. You want to talk about a, a city on a hill? Is a church that continues to try to move in a direction of literally bringing the reality of heaven to earth with the way we treat each other and the way we treat other people. Not treating people on external factors like the world does, social status, race, income, but embracing people as image bearers of God God loves, and if they're believers who stand on the same level ground at the foot of the cross, may God put to death the nearsighted usher in all of us. I know I'm going long, but I don't care. I'm just going to tell this last story. It's a story about, um, about Gandhi. I read this this week, remembering that if we do this right, the results can be explosively glorious. If we don't do it, it can be explosively detrimental. But it was a story that some of you may have heard about Gandhi in, before the uh, independent uh, movement in India. Gandhi was a young lawyer practicing in South Africa. Some of you may have learned that in school. And he was studying as his heart was breaking for his people in the caste system that was just tearing his country apart. He was, he was practicing as a lawyer in South Africa and he was studying different world religions. And he began to study the Bible. And he began to, what we would know, we'd say it this way, he began to sense this whole like level ground at the foot of the cross. In other words, he began to see Jesus as a potential solution to the casteism problem. And so he's studying the Bible, he's considering becoming a Christian. And as the story goes, he goes and finds a local church there in the town that he was living in in South Africa, a Protestant church, a Christian church. And he walks up and he's planning to go into worship, but he never got in the church. He was met at the door by an usher who saw him coming in from a distance away. And he says, no, only Europeans here. He says, you go worship with your own people. There's a church across town that you can worship with your own people. He called him a cariff. He called him an infidel. Threatened to throw him down a set of stairs. As the story goes, Gandhi turned away and never came back. Turned away because of the color of his skin. A missionary named Stanley Jones would later sit down with Gandhi who said famously, I like Christ, I just don't like Christians. Dangerous to play the what have coulda, shoulda game, you know. But you think about 1.3 million, billion people in India who turned to Hinduism. Because of Gandhi's protest. And whether it's racism or elitism or classism, it's always evil. And so by God's grace, may we learn from stories like that. May we own the sin of partiality in our own hearts. May we get our eyes on the Lord of glory. And may we never, ever, ever get over being recipients of the mercy of God that we may be dispensers of it to all people. Let's pray. if you're here this morning and you need to know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I will be down front. I'll be ready to receive you. would love to talk to you about what that means. Believer, here's my challenge to you this morning in our response time. Would you allow the Holy Spirit to work in your heart? To do a difficult work, but a healing work? To show you where you've sinned in this area? To repent of it? And to simply pray this, God, Put to death the nearsighted usher in me. Put to death the nearsighted usher in me.